The 27 Club is a cultural phenomenon where notable icons with seemingly hedonistic lifestyles die at the peak of their career, coincidentally or not so coincidentally, at the age of 27. It consists mainly of popular musicians, actors and artists, and this series we're about to embark on focuses in on six of its most known musicians. Today, let's talk about Amy. Amy Winehouse. So today is Amy Winehouse's 11th anniversary. Amy died on the 23rd of July 2011, and I want to talk about her life, her career, and her legacy in a lot more depth. A musical hero of mine and so many millions of others, here's Amy Winehouse. Before we begin to chat about Amy, I wanted to introduce myself. So I started out on TikTok as Sweet Lady Music, and my own name is Kelsey. A series I do on my TikTok is about musicians who have passed away and delving into everything from where they grew up to their record sales. But when I was trying to do this series on Amy, it felt very impersonal. So I then decided that I'm going to make a podcast series about the lives of some musicians who have entered the infamous 27 Club. Amy being the notable star to die whilst I've been on this earth got me intrigued about the 27 Club even more and having turned 27 myself on July 22nd this year, literally yesterday, I'm more fascinated than ever. So basically this podcast series will outline the facts of members of the 27 Club's lives as well as being a place where I can speak more comfortably about the impact these musicians had on my own life, I guess. So I remember really clearly the day that Amy Winehouse died I remember having gotten on the bus with my friends to Cork City to do some shopping, go to the cinema, hang around like young people do. I think it was probably for my birthday, so that would have been, what, my 16th birthday? And when I was hanging around the bus station before making my way home, I got a call from my parents. So they told me that someone I admired had died, and they asked me to guess who. And my first guess was Lily Allen, actually, who was going through a bit of a turbulent time in 2011 also, if I recall correctly. They said no, and my second guess was Amy Winehouse. They confirmed my second guess, and I remember tearing up at the bus station. I, I didn't break down in tears now. I don't know if I had the right to do that, but I did well up for sure. A lot of people talk about how they remember exactly where they were when Princess Diana died. For me, I remember exactly where I was when Amy passed away. I was devastated to say the least. You know, she was such an influence on my music taste. And as a singer myself with a low voice, I admired how she got onto the mainstream without sacrificing herself for a bubblegum pop sound. You know, she stayed true to herself and was authentic as could be, especially when it came to her music. She led a very troubled life, we all know that. No thanks to the media who hounded her until her dying day, but she was, in such a terrible place in life and I can't help but think her untimely death could have been avoided. I don't think it was her time to go but nonetheless she has made a superb impact on the world and her music will absolutely never be forgotten. So starting with her early life, Amy grew up in North London in a Jewish household with her mother Janice and father Mitch. Her parents split up when she was nine years old and she spent most of her time with her mother and dad on the weekends. So she came from a really musical family with some of her uncles being jazz musicians. Not the only singer in her family, Amy's beloved grandmother Cynthia was also a singer who once dated the jazz legend Ronnie Scott of the famous Ronnie Scott in Soho. Um, I think any Amy Winehouse fan will know of her love for her grandmother Cynthia with one of her tattoos on her arm 
bearing her grandmother's name. Amy was fascinated by her grandmother and was influenced greatly by her. She is known to have her grandmother's name tattooed on her right arm. I just said that. Oops. <laughs> Thank God it's a podcast and I'm able to make some mistakes. That's good. Um, they were very much two peas in a pod and Cynthia was the one who encouraged Amy to sing. A blinding force into Amy's worldwide success. Amy is known to have started getting off the rails around the year 2006 and whilst I personally think there were many factors involved including her perliest relationship with Blake Fielder Civil, her father Mitch is adamant that her downfall was a result of her heartbreak with Cynthia. Um, I do think definitely the death of Cynthia is involved but I think there's definitely more of um, a heartbreak with, with Blake as well from the the lyrics of the songs that she wrote, especially in Back to Black, it's of heartache, you know, from a lover. So something which I recently discovered as well is that Cynthia was a keen tarot reader, which I love to hear. I'm a massive fan of tarot, and whilst I'm not great at reading the cards myself, I'm so fascinated by them. Amy inherited her grandmother's belief in the power of tarot, often being seen holding a pack of cards and believing her grandmother could tell the future. I understand people's scepticism when it comes to tarot and anything like it, but to each their own, and Amy was a firm believer. Cynthia and Mitch were jazz nuts and introduced Amy to many artists who inspired her unique music style, such as Ella Fitzgerald, Thelonious Monk, and most notably, Dina Washington. Washington was likely the most impactful artist on Amy's style, and she is known to have loved Dina Washington's album, The Swinging Miss D, which was produced by the legendary Quincy Jones, and Amy actually later worked with Quincy Jones not too long before her passing. Amy was also inspired by music which her mother Janice introduced to her, and in Janice's memoir, Loving Amy, A Mother's Story, she notes that a favourite album of both Janice and Amy's was Carol King's Tapestry. Three other albums which shaped Amy's style include Michael Jackson's Bad, Alanis Morissette's album Jagged Little Pill, as well as Salt and Pepper's album Very Necessary. So Amy's love for rap, hip hop, and Salt and Pepper motivated her, along with her school pal Juliet Ashby, to form their own rap group called Sweet and Sour. Amy was sour and Juliet was sweet. They have some songs which can still be found on YouTube, including Spinderella boys who needs them as well as glam chicks being in this rap group was amy's first experience recording in a studio and even though they never released an album the experience sparked a fire in amy to pursue a career in music so it's clear from amy's involvement in a rap group that her love for music spanned across many genres as well as her ability to sing in these genres so no matter what the style she had a passion for deep music whether that was in the form of rap jazz rock and roll reggae or R&B she was able to deliver. She started songwriting upon getting her own guitar at the age of 14, having used her brother's guitar up until that point. She was a creative through and through, a vessel of pure emotion with the tone of her voice, outstanding lyricist, putting pain into the most beautiful words, truly a standout star. So as well, Amy attended the renowned Sylvia Young Theatre School in her teens and Known faces who actually studied at a similar time include Billy Piper and Matt Willis from Boston. I had the biggest crush on Matt and Charlie from Boston when I was younger, so it was cool to find out. Though it was reported that she was expelled for not applying herself to academic studies while standing out brilliantly at the creative side of things, Sylvia Young continues to deny this to this day. So Sylvia claims that the person who suggested 
Amy leave and study elsewhere did not remain at Sylvia Young's theatre school for a long time after the incident. Sylvia recalls telling Amy to take out her earrings and nose piercings and Amy apologising and obliging only to find the jewellery back in place a few hours later. Sylvia was rightly so unbelievably impressed by Amy's talents and states she would not have agreed to her expulsion. It was actually Sylvia who suggested that Amy should audition for the National Jazz Youth Orchestra and upon a very successful audition, she featured as a vocalist with them in July 2000. And that's National Youth Jazz Orchestra. Me messing up my words, are we surprised? Um, But whilst performing with the orchestra, Amy was spotted by pop manager Simon Fuller, the man behind the success of the Spice Girls. I know a million miles away from Amy Winehouse. However, her success really started after she started working with Tyler James. Uh, Tyler James was her friend and fellow singer-songwriter who she met at Sylvia Young's. He was signed to Brilliant, a division of 19 Management Limited, the talent agency owned by Simon Fuller. So Tyler helped Amy cut a few demos as he was so enthralled by her musical abilities and he passed these demos to an A&R at Brilliant 19 Limited, Nick Szymanski. Before long, Szymanski was approaching Amy, noting his interest in managing her, and obviously Amy was elated at this point. So he decided that Amy should write some original songs in order to court record label interest. Along with producer Major, Amy started working on songs influenced by acts such as TLC, Frank Sinatra, and Ella Fitzgerald, to name but a few. The day that Szymanski first spoke to Major about working with Amy Winehouse was a day he would never forget for two reasons. The first was the start of his working relationship with Amy and the second being the tragic attacks on the World Trade Center in New York. It was September the 11th, 2001. So Major is the person who got Amy in touch with Darkest Bees, A&R at Island Records, with whom she made her first record deal. Upon hearing some of the demos Amy had been involved in, Bees wanted to meet her in a casual setting, so he headed down to the studio as a friend of Major's. He then visited the 19 management offices. At this stage, 19 management were keeping Amy a secret, discreetly circulating her demos between two or three labels. She was clearly the worst kept secret in the music industry at this time. Bees, having had a head start through Major, negotiations began and on the 17th of December 2002 at the age of 19 Amy was officially signed to Universal Island Records. Frank was Amy's debut studio album released on the 20th of October 2003. Production from the album took place during 2002 and 2003 and was handled by Amy, Salam Remy, Commissioner Gordon, Jimmy Hogarth and Matt Rowe. Frank is a fusing of feminist ideals and traditionalism, hence the album's title. And the songs emulate the frank musings of Amy, as well as being an homage to the kind of macho, tough, traditional man that Frank Sinatra presented. Amy was nominated for British Female Solo Artist and British Urban Act at the 2004 Brit Awards, while Frank was shortlisted for the Mercury Music Prize that same year. The album earned Winehouse an Ivor Novello Award. Critically, the album did great also, with critics adoring the sleaziness, soul and seediness of her lyrics. It didn't sound like lyrics that would come from a typical 19-year-old woman. It it sounded like it it came from someone a lot older. So, unlike the critics, Amy didn't love the record. According to her, she had never listened to the full Frank album. The reason isn't exactly the painful emotions she poured into her music, though. Like most people who excel in music, 
Amy was a perfectionist. And to produce Frank, Amy had to bow down to the commercial side of the music business, something she hated. And according to her, the album held some bad memories. She told The Guardian, quote, some things on this album make me go to a little place that's fucking bitter. I've never heard the album from start to finish. I don't have it in my house, end quote. She was 80% comfortable with how Frank turned out and she encouraged people to buy it, but she knew she wanted a different strategy for her next album for sure. So moving from her style in music to clothing and image, before Amy hit worldwide fame, she was your run-of-the-mill young 20-something North London brunette. The candid photos of her both on the cover of Frank as well as its singles highlight her undistinguished style at the time. On the cover of Frank, you can see a slight layer of eyeliner on her, very different to what would come. So her beehive or tattoos, nowhere to be seen pre-2007, it was circa the Brit Awards 2007 where the quintessential Amy Winehouse style she is known for today was birthed. Thick winged eyeliner, bra on show, tattoos on display proudly, and her iconic beehive hairdo. One of Amy's biggest influences, image-wise, was the Ronettes. The makeup and hairdos are easily borrowed from the 60s girl group. Other influences include the Shirelles and the, Sha- the Shangri-Las. So she was an old soul in many ways, and it made its way into her world-renowned style. It made its way into her wardrobe. I cannot seem to find traces of this on the internet, but I recall hearing her say in an interview that the more insecure or anxious she felt, the thicker her eyeliner and bigger her beehive would be. As I said, I can't find the source now. I may have dreamed it up, but I wouldn't be surprised if these became part of a security blanket for Amy when she was going through more troubled times, as it seems she did rock more dramatic looks when she was going through a tough period. So moving on to her best-known romantic and tragic relationship, in 2005, Amy met Blake Fielder-Civil in a bar in Camden. I've mixed reports on her either meeting him at the Holly Arms or the Good Mixer. Myself, I'm a frequenter of Camden and looking to move there soon, all because of Amy Winehouse and the overall amazing vibe there. So the Good Mixer is one bar I've never set foot in in Camden. It's on my list now for sure, but I do love the Holly, which has an amazing mural dedicated to Amy on the back of the building. If you're ever there, take a look, take a picture. It's amazing. Anyway, I digress. Before Amy's untimely death, the majority of tabloid coverage of the troubled singer revolved around her whirlwind relationship with Blake Fielder-Civil, a video production assistant. Blake was in another relationship at the time of the chance meeting with Amy, but nevertheless went back to her nearby flat to hear her sing, at which point he claims he fell instantly in love with her. The two became almost instant headline fodder for the British press, as the pair's parting lifestyle regularly saw them worse for wear on the streets of Camden, making them easy targets for the paparazzi. Amy was madly in love with Blake, tattooing his name over the image of a pocket over her heart. Amy and Blake were engaged in 2007 and married one month later in Miami. Fans and family alike were worried for Amy when she was in this relationship. It was seen as destructive and underpinned by addiction issues that were spiralling out of control. Amy later admitted that the relationship between her and Blake was entirely based on drugs. Their shared addictions included heroin and crack cocaine, and Blake admitted to introducing Amy to heroin. Amy was hospitalized during August of 2007 for what was reported as an overdose of heroin, ecstasy, cocaine, ketamine, and alcohol. Amy and Blake were dramatically torn apart within months of their marriage when Fielder Civil was sent to prison after being convicted of having assaulted the manager of a London pub, 
before attempting to pervert the course of justice by bribing the man in question. During his sentence, Amy experienced the high point of her career, winning five awards at the 2008 Grammys, including Best Album and Best Song. But even separated from her enabling husband, Amy continued to struggle with addiction. On the advice of her family, she soon escaped the London party scene for St. Lucia, where she had a brief affair that led to Blake filing for divorce. Amy said, quote, I still love Blake and I want him to move into my new house with me. That was my plan all along. I won't let him divorce me. He's the male version of me and we're perfect for each other, end quote. Nevertheless, the divorce was granted. Blake claimed after Amy's death that they had remained in contact and that they had admitted that they would always love each other. Look, I can't speak on enabling relationships. I've thankfully never been in one, but the story of Amy and Blake always makes me so sad. Like, I just think that things would be a whole lot different for her if she hadn't met him that one night in 2005. You know, things could have worked out so much better for her. It's kind of like a poetic tragedy, really. Had Amy not met Blake, she may have never received the most prestigious of awards in music that made her so proud, may never have become such a world-renowned figure. But had Amy never met Blake, she may also still be alive today. Moving back into Amy's music... Back to Black, her second and final album, was released on the 27th of October 2006 and was released through Metropolis Music. This album was predominantly based on her tumultuous relationship with Blake. I've scattered the timeline a bit here, but basically she wrote a lot of songs on this album about Blake when they were on a break before they got married. He temporarily left Amy to pursue his previous ex-girlfriend. The short-lived separation spurred her to create Back to Black, an album that explores themes of infidelity, heartbreak, guilt and grief in a relationship. Of the album, Amy said, Back to Black is when you finish the relationship and you go back to what's comfortable for you. My ex went back to his girlfriend and I went back to drinking and dark times. Amy again worked with Salam Remy as well as Mark Ronson in this album, backed by Sharon Jones's band The Dap Kings. This album was very influenced by the pop and soul music of 1960s girl groups and this is emulated well in her lyrics, pining for her man after attaining a broken heart. Back to Black was an instant classic. The album was acclaimed by music critics who praised Winehouse's songwriting and emotive singing style as well as Remy and Ronson's production. The album spawned five singles, Rehab, You Know I'm No Good, Back to Black, Tears Dry on Their Own and Love is a Losing Game. It has also been cited as being a key influence to the widespread popularity of British soul throughout the late 2000s, paving the musical landscape for artists such as Adele, Duffy and Estelle. In November 2007, the opening night of a 17-date tour was marred by booing and walkouts at the National Indoor Arena in Birmingham. A critic for the Birmingham Mail said, It was one of the saddest nights of my life. I saw a supremely talented artist reduced to tears, stumbling around the stage and unforgivably swearing at the audience. Other concerts ended similarly with, for example, fans at her Hammersmith Apollo performance in London saying that she looked highly intoxicated throughout, until she announced on the 27th of November 2007 that her performances and public appearances were cancelled for the remainder of the year, citing her doctor's advice to take a complete rest. Focusing on a more positive note, at the 2008 Grammy Awards, Back to Black won Best Pop Vocal Album and was also nominated for Album of the Year. 
At the same ceremony, Amy won four additional awards, tying her with five other artists as the second most awarded female in a single ceremony. So the album was also nominated at the 2007 Brit Awards for MasterCard British Album and was shortlisted for the 2007 Mercury Prize. Back to Black sold 3.58 million copies in the UK alone, becoming the UK's second best-selling album of the 21st century so far. The album has sold over 16 million copies worldwide. At the Grammys, she ended her acceptance speech for Record of the Year with This is for London because Camden Town ain't burning down in reference to the 2008 Camden Market Fire. Performing You Know I'm No Good and Rehab via satellite from London's Riverside Studios at 3am UK time, she couldn't be at the ceremony in LA as her visa approval had been rejected. I remember seeing her face on television when she won her first Grammy. She was just so stunned and couldn't believe it. But everyone else could because Back to Black, well, that's an album that has gone down in history. The heartache in every song makes you wince. It is just amazing. And each song, the B-sides, the songs that haven't been released as singles, they're all just amazing tunes. I've always preferred Back to Black to Frank. There's no comparing the two in style necessarily, and Frank is fantastic, but Back to Black is out of this world. After her lockout at the Grammys, as well as the Ivor Novellos in 2008, Amy continued performing, although her father, manager, and various members of her touring team reportedly tried to dissuade her. She performed at the Rock in Rio Lisboa Festival in Portugal in May 2008, and although the set was played by a late arrival and problems with her voice, the crowd warmed to her. She performed at Nelson Mandela's 90th birthday party concert at London's Hyde Park on the 27th of June 2008 and the next day at the Glastonbury Festival. On July 12th, the same year, at the Oxygen Festival in Ireland, she performed a well-received 50-minute set, which was followed the next day by a set at Tea in the Park. This was one of the most intense times for Amy in her career. She was doing what she loved, but these back-to-back tour dates would take their toll ultimately. In August of 2008, she played at the Staffordshire leg of the V Festival and the following day played the Chelmsford leg of the festival. Organisers said that Amy attracted the biggest crowds of the festival, but the audience reaction was reported as mixed. On the 6th of September, she was Bestival's Saturday headliner, where her performance was described as polished, terminated by a curfew as the show was running overdue after she started an hour late and her storming off the stage. James Bond composer David Arnold said that Amy Winehouse, along with Mark Ronson, was meant to do the theme tune for the 2008 James Bond film, Quantum of Solace. Instead, Another Way to Die by Jack White and Alicia Keys was chosen. I think Amy's voice definitely would have fit a Bond theme so well. It's a shame that that never sufficed. I love the song Another Way to Die by Jack White and Alicia Keys, but I feel like Amy Winehouse could have just done something unforgettable. According to the Times, Universal Music pressed Amy for new material in 2008, but as of early September that year, she hadn't stepped foot in the recording studio. In late October, Amy's spokesman stated that she hadn't been given a deadline to complete her third album, but she was learning the drums for it. Come May 2009, Amy returned to performing at a jazz festival in St. Lucia amid torrential weather and technical difficulties. And during her set, she was reported to have been unsteady on her feet, and was finding it difficult to remember the lyrics. She apologized to the crowd, stated that she was bored, and ended the set in the middle of a song. 
There were positive things happening in St. Lucia also, however, as Amy was working on new music with Remy at this time. And in August of 2009, Amy sang with the specials at Fee Festival on their songs You're Wondering Now and Ghost Town. Ghost Town is another favourite of mine. You should definitely give it a listen. Also in 2009, Amy founded her own record label, Lioness Records, to which she signed Dion Bromfield, her goddaughter, Juliet Ashby, her best friend, Salon, and Liam Bailey. According to Island, her third album was due for release in 2010, and Amy confirmed that her next album would be released no later than January 2011. She mentioned it would be very similar to the hits from Back to Black. Bronson confirmed at this time, however, that he had not even started recording the album with her. Unfortunately, as we all know, this third album would never be recorded or released. Amy had a large amount of gigs lined up in the interim, and in October 2010, she performed a four-song set to promote her fashion line, as well as playing a 40-minute concert for a Russian oligarch's party in Moscow in December of the same year. In January 2011, Amy played five dates in Brazil, with opening acts of Janelle Monet and Mayor Hawthorne. The following month, she caught short a performance in Dubai, following booing from the audience. Amy was reported to be tired, distracted and tipsy during the performance. It is clear that the path that she was going down at this point was not good. On 18th of June 2011, Amy started her 12-leg European tour in Belgrade. Local media described her performance as a scandal and disaster, and unfortunately she was booed off the stage due to her apparently being too drunk to perform. It was reported that she was unable to remember the city she was in, the lyrics of her songs, or the names of the members of her band. If this wasn't a cry for help, I mean, what could have been? The local press also claimed that Amy was forced to perform by her bodyguards, who did not allow her to leave the stage when she tried to do so. She then pulled out of performances in Istanbul and Athens, which had been scheduled for the following week. And on the 21st of June, it was announced that she had cancelled all of the shows of her tour and would be given as long as it takes to sort herself out. This is such a stark callback to the reality of what happened in her situation. Had she been given this time before being assumably forced into touring in 2011, she may still be around. We'll never know. Amy's last public appearance took place at Camden's Roundhouse on the 20th of July 2011 when she made a surprise appearance on stage to support her goddaughter Dionne Bromfield who was singing Mama Said with The Wanted. Winehouse died three days later. Her last recording was a duet with American singer Tony Bennett for his album Duets 2 released on the 20th of September 2011. Their single from the album Body and Soul was released on the 14th of September 2011 on MTV and VH1 to commemorate what would have been Amy's 28th birthday. Amy was known to be a charitable figure, having raised money for breast cancer awareness and climate change awareness in her time. A Caribbean man, Julian Jean de Baptiste, revealed that Amy had paid for his urgent surgery costing four grand during her stay in St. Lucia in 2009. He said, I had surgery on the 1st of July 2009. It cost a fortune and Amy paid for the whole thing. I tried to thank her, but she just hugged me and told me not to say anything. Her generosity gave me my life back. She also had razor sharp wit, and although her relationship with the paparazzi was not always positive, she often made the paps that camped outside her house tea and brought them out biscuits and allowed them to take some pictures. In return, 
They'd run to the shops for her, get her cigarettes, booze, crisps, etc. She was supposedly incredibly funny as well. This is seen a lot in her video interviews and she was meant to be super kind. Once when a taxi driver was bringing her home, he mentioned it was his daughter's birthday. She asked him to stop at a shop so she could buy some cigarettes and came out with a birthday card for his daughter also in her hand. She was an absolute character from what I have investigated and although she led a turbulent life, there were many positive events that happened for her too. On the morning of the 23rd of July 2011, Amy Winehouse was found unresponsive by her bodyguard lying on her bed in her bedroom. He had observed Amy drinking moderately but nothing out of the ordinary before the fateful day and he had heard her laughing, listening to music and watching TV up until 2am on the morning of her death. He checked her at 10am and she was supposedly asleep. Not strange as this was usual for her. He then became concerned when he hadn't seen her by 3pm and he checked on her but he could not rouse her. He called an ambulance and they pronounced her dead at the scene. After her death was announced, media and camera crews appeared as crowds gathered near Amy's residence to pay their respects. Forensic investigators entered the flat as police cordoned off the street outside. They recovered one small and two large bottles of vodka from her room. And after her death, Amy broke her second Guinness World Record for the most songs by a woman to simultaneously appear on the UK singles chart with eight. A coroner's inquest reached a verdict of misadventure. The report released on the 26th of October 2011 explained that Winehouse's blood alcohol content was 416 milligrams per 100 mils. That's 0.416% at the time of her death, more than five times the legal drink drive limit. According to the coroner, the unintended consequences of such potentially fatal levels was her sudden death. Amy Winehouse was dead at the age of 27 due to alcohol misuse. She had been the most recent member of the worst club in the world, the 27 Club. On the 14th of September 2014, which would have been Amy's 31st birthday, a statue was unveiled of her, which was created by sculptor Scott Eaton at Stables Market in Camden Town, North London. Fans and relatives gathered for the unveiling in Camden's Stable Market, where it would be a permanent memorial to her. Amy had previously said that she would give up all of her fame and achievements just to be able to walk down the street without any hassle. I think at the root of it, Amy was a young, bubbly, super talented and creative woman who sang her heartbreak and moulded it into the most beautiful, wonderful auditory masterpieces. She wanted to share her talent with the world, but she could never be prepared for what was to come. I fear that some of her notoriety in pop culture coincides with her dying at such a young age, which is sad to me. She should be recognised for the amazing singer-songwriter that she was, the woman who felt heartbreak like the rest of us but put it into such beautiful words. A woman who struggled with addiction and tried her best to kick her habits for a better life, where she wanted to settle down, get married and have children with her most recent partner, Reg Travis. She was excited for the future. She was trying to get sober, but things caught up with her. Her story always breaks my heart. There'll never be another that can compare to Amy Winehouse, I'm sure of it. Her authentic, tortured soul will always be a source of inspiration for me and millions of others. So that's all today on the wonderful Amy Winehouse. I'll have another podcast out next week on the next member of the 27 Club. I won't announce who that is just yet, but thanks so much for listening. Um, 
definitely go check out my TikTok. This is the first podcast I've ever done. So, you know, my equipment isn't the best. Uh, my editing skills aren't great. But I appreciate you getting this far. And if you have gotten this far, you're an absolute angel. Surely it will only get better from here. Um, I really appreciate it. Bye for now. And in the meantime, you can catch me on Sweet Lady Music on TikTok. Bye.